But today, our passage is uh, from a story in chapter 10, as they're still on their way to Jerusalem before that big confrontation took place. And uh, here's how it says, uh, we're in chapter 10 and verse, uh, where are we here? Verse 17, it says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's several noteworthy things right off the bat here in this story as this guy comes up and approaches Jesus. It's, uh, it's quite a, a, an unusual scene. Um, first, uh, the guy runs up to Jesus, right? So he's not just that Jesus and his disciples and the crowd are moving along the road. This guy doesn't just happen to be in the crowd there walking along with them and yeah, a question just occurred to me. No, he comes running up to Jesus. Um, why is he running? Yeah, I mean, clearly he, he really wants to get this question to Jesus. He doesn't want to miss his opportunity to talk to Jesus. So um, presumably he got to the village where Jesus had been and they told him, oh no, Jesus already left. He's down the road. And the guy didn't say, oh, well, he's already gone. I guess I missed him. No, he said, oh, he's already down there. I'll catch him. Takes off running down the road to catch up with Jesus so uh, he can uh, ask his question. And then when he gets there, he doesn't just, you know, come jogging up and then, whew, okay, let me walk with these guys for a little bit, catch my breath, and then I'll ask him my question. He, it says that he falls on his knees before Jesus when he arrives. Um, that's, that's a bit odd, wouldn't you say, for him to come running up and just like dive onto the ground in front of Jesus? Um, what does that show to get down on his knees like that? Well, kneeling is a position of supplication. Kneeling is a position of submission. It's a position where you are asking humbly. See, this guy is not here to debate Jesus about what's the, what's the uh, best way or the way to get into the kingdom of heaven or the way to get eternal life. Or he's not trying to trap Jesus. We have a few stories in the Bible of people that would come and ask Jesus trick questions to try to trap him in something. This guy's not in that group. He is here because he wants to beg Jesus to answer his question, and he fully intends to submit to whatever it is that Jesus says. The third thing to notice here is that he addresses Jesus in an extraordinary way. He calls him good teacher. Now, at the very least, that's really, you know, he's showing Jesus honor by calling him a good teacher. He's, he's saying, Jesus has the ability to teach him. You're a teacher, and you are good. You are good. So, so far, this guy seems like a pretty impressive person with a pretty high view of who Jesus is. He believes that Jesus is someone who can answer his spiritual question, and he feels a great desire to learn from Jesus. He's not the kind of person who's kind of moderately interested in spiritual things. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've got my life over here, but oh, yeah, spiritual things are interesting too. No, this guy, he's not one of these people that uh, has one small section of his life where he pra uh, that he practices on the synagogue at the Sabbath and stuff, that, uh, but then the rest of the week he's just going about his business. 
This guy is serious about spiritual things. And he's coming to the correct source to find the answer to his question. He's coming to Jesus himself. And then he asks what's really a pretty great question. He wants eternal life. And that, he, 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 he assumes if you're asking that question, he, he believes that there is a God and that there is a possibility of life after death, eternal life, but he also knows you can't just take that for granted. Everybody doesn't get eternal life. There's something, uh, there, there's a standard. And he is coming to question Jesus about what is that standard. And even though we'll see in a few minutes, he's a very religious person. He follows all the religious rules, but he knows or he at least suspects that that isn't enough. It's not enough. And, uh, and he wants to know what he must do to warrant eternal life when he dies. So far, this guy is a pretty great example for us, I would say. How many of us are seeking Jesus with the kind of zeal that this guy has? Running to meet him, falling on his knees and asking great questions. But Jesus does what he often does, and he doesn't give the kind of answer that we would expect. Uh, Jesus very often gives answers that you're like, whoa, how is that? What? So here's what he says uh, to this guy. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, it's a little bit fuzzy exactly what Jesus is, is trying to get at with this response, but it seems to be that he is wanting the man to think about the full significance of what he has just said. Some of the questions that Jesus uh, is implying in this answer might be, are people really good? Are you good? Are you, uh, you're asking about eternal life. Do you think anyone is good enough to deserve eternal life? And he's also implying, who do you really think I am? All those questions are kind of in that response that Jesus gives about, why do you call me good? And that's an answer that is meant to feed the man's spiritual curiosity and to cause him to question and think about more deeply his own goodness and about who Jesus is. And then Jesus actually gives the answer to the question in the next verse. He says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you should not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. So that's a quick summary that Jesus gives of a section of the Ten Commandments and some of, another bit of the law thrown in there. Um, it's not meant to be exhaustive. Jesus is just saying, you know, here's a few of the commandments. You know what they are. Um, and he's saying something like, if you want eternal life, obey the instructions that are given in the law. And the guy says, uh, teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. That's fairly bold. But I would say that this guy is basically in the same place as our friend Saul of Tarsus, better known as Paul, the guy who wrote a lot of the stuff in the Bible later on. Paul, uh, in the book of Galatians, he wrote about his own life before he became a Christian, and he, called, he described himself as 
as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So is that true? Was Paul faultless in his keeping of the law? Or had this guy that Jesus is talking to here really kept all the law since the time he was a boy? Well, it's possible in a certain sense that that is, is entirely true. If we look at the list that Jesus gave, let's, let's go through that list. Don't murder. I think probably most of us here could say, yeah, we've kept that one, right? Not, not very many of us have failed there. No adultery. Um, again, probably a lot of people uh, have, have, have been able to, uh, to keep that, that rule. Don't steal. Not, not impossible that many people have not stolen anything. Um, false testimony. That one's a little trickier. But if you understand false testimony uh, in kind of a legal sense of not having false contracts or false statements in law or, or in kind of more formal settings like that, and you don't include things like whether you're, when your wife asks you if her new haircut looks good, um, then, then yeah, people could have kept that, uh, that part of the law too. And the same goes for the rest of the, the kind of more external commandments um, about that uh, are throughout the, the law. People could follow those. It's possible. And it's possible that Paul and this guy in this story and probably uh, a good number of other uh, really uh, strident Jews of this day could say, I have kept the law. If you focus on the ones that are more external in their application, like the ones that Jesus lists here, yeah, it, it's possible to keep the law. But of course, there is another context where Jesus challenged all of these people who thought that they were keeping the law and doing good enough. And he said things like this. He said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And then he said, you've heard that it was said, uh, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. So what was Jesus saying there in, in that context? In that, that, uh, that's from the Sermon on the Mount. What's he saying? He's saying that keeping the law is more than just external observance of moral rules. Right? It's more, not just keeping the moral rules. It, it, to be really righteous in God's eyes, you need to actually have holy thoughts and holy motivations. And when we judge ourselves by that standard, no, we haven't actually kept the law. And even in the law itself, you know, without Jesus' kind of uh, reinterpretation of it or, or re, uh, reframing of it in, in the in his teaching, there are some parts that are, are really uh, a lot more difficult to observe, like uh, the prohibition of coveting. We really uh, have that pure of thoughts that we never wish we had, what others have, and, and things of that sort. But when it comes to the external observance, the observable things that, uh, that people can see, you know, you don't kill anybody, you don't commit adultery, those kinds of things, yeah, it's possible that people can keep the law. Maybe not perfectly, but they can do it pretty close. 
But Jesus isn't done yet with his answer to this guy's question. He doesn't say, oh, you've kept the law since you were a boy. Well, fine then, I'll see you in heaven. You're good. No, Jesus instead, there's a bit of a pause in the conversation. And there in verse uh, 21, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's, that's an interesting statement. You know, of course, Jesus loves everybody, right? Uh, but on the other hand, somehow there was something noteworthy about the love that Jesus had for this guy at this moment. Here was a man who really wanted eternal life. He believed in God and eternity. He was eager to hear from Jesus what he needed to do. He seems to have understood that his external rule following wasn't enough. Otherwise, why was he coming and asking Jesus this question? And Jesus could see the effort that this guy had put in trying to make sure that he lived pleasing to God and his desire to do whatever it would take to get into heaven. And Jesus looked at that guy and his, his earnestness and he loved him. But Jesus also knew his heart and he knew that something was still lacking for him. And so he said, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Well, everyone there was very surprised to hear this, right? The disciples that were walking in there and overhearing this whole thing, they were very surprised, as we're going to see in just a moment here. The man uh, himself was, of course, certainly very surprised. This was not the kind of answer he expected Jesus to give. You know, maybe Jesus would ask him, you need to give some sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. Or maybe Jesus would ask him uh, to make a significant donation to the poor. Or, or to memorize the book of Isaiah. Or to, uh, to, to fast twice a week. Or sponsor the construction of a new synagogue. Or, or, or uh, take on financial support of Jesus and his disciples. Or, or maybe take a Nazarite vow, or be baptized in the Jordan, or something, right? Something reasonable and doable. Some act of religious devotion that would show that he valued eternal life and salvation and was willing to do extravagant things in order to do it, to get it. But Jesus did not give him a reasonable requirement. Jesus gave him a most unreasonable requirement and it was a requirement that he had not given to other people. Sell everything, give it all to the poor. We even remember the story of Zacchaeus. Do you remember that story? Zacchaeus was a wealthy man. In that story, Zacchaeus decided, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus only had to give up half, but he's asking this guy to give up everything. What's going on here? Why is Jesus asking him to do this? Well, there's a parable that Jesus told in another place that I think really shows what Jesus is getting at here, right? The same theme, the same idea is in this parable. It's a parable from the Gospel of Matthew, and here's what Jesus said. It's a very short parable. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven 
is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, in that story, uh, Jesus' character is a pearl merchant, right? He's not a, like a pearl diver who's breaking open oysters looking for pearls. He's a guy who's like going around uh, to the traders and the people who are the caravans coming up from the coast and things. And he's looking for pearls that he can purchase, and either he's going to make them into jewelry or he's going to sell them to a jewelry maker or something. So he's some kind of a merchant. I picture this a lot like um, the guys on that TV show, American Pickers. Have you guys ever seen that show where these, these guys, they own an antique store, I think it's in Iowa, and they drive around in this big van and, uh, and drive around the country to various places, and they find these, usually it's some old guy who has like a barn full of old stuff that he's collected over 50 years or something, and they go in and they dig through all the stuff, and they're looking for neat things that they can purchase from this guy and then take back and sell in their antique store. And... Um, and that's a lot like what this pearl merchant's doing. He's, he's going through looking for pearls that he can buy, that he can then take and, and, uh, and resell. And, and sometimes on, on that show, American Pickers, they find an item that they get really excited about. Like, oh, this thing is so cool, this little toy car or whatever it is, and I gotta have this thing. And then they start negotiating a price with the, uh, the owner. And sometimes the prices on these things can get pretty high. Uh, kind of crazy sometimes what these little uh, antiques can be worth. But Jesus' story here goes way beyond anything that those guys would do, right? Um, this guy who finds this pearl, he must have it, right? So he pulls out his purse, counts out all of his money. It's not enough to buy it. He's like, okay, no problem. I'll sell my donkey. Oh, he still doesn't have enough money. Okay, fine, uh, I'm going to sell my extra pair of sandals and my spare cloak. Still can't do it. I'll sell my camel, I'll sell my tools, I'll sell my sword, I'll sell my furniture. Not enough. I'll sell my house. I'll sell my land. I'll sell all, uh, my farm and all my sheep and goats, everything. Sells everything he has so he can buy this pearl. It would be like those guys uh, on the TV show sold their whole store and everything in it. Sold their own homes sold the van that they were driving around in with, sold their sunglasses, sold their watch off their wrist, sold everything they owned so they could buy some little antique. Right? It's, it's, it's crazy. Is that normal, sane behavior? No. No. What are you, what are you even going to do with this thing, right? This guy's now sold everything and he has a pearl. Good thinking, man. What are you going to eat for breakfast tomorrow morning? Where are you going to sleep tonight? All you've got is a little white ball. So what was Jesus' point in the parable? What's he trying to say? He's trying to say that um, uh, external, uh, eternal life is more valuable to you than anything and everything in your life. The point of the parable is not really hard to figure out. It's really believing the point of the parable that's hard. Eternal life is more valuable to you than anything and everything in your life. And not just material things. Anything and everything. It's more important than your career. It's more important than your reputation. It's more important than being popular. More important than your comfort. 
more important than your marriage, more important than your relationship with your kids. The kingdom of God is more important than anything. So basically, Jesus is presenting the guy in our story today who comes and kneels before him with the same scenario as the guy in his story about the merchant and the pearl, right? Uh, Jesus says, there is great treasure in heaven, and you can have it. All you need to do is sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Does the man really believe in the treasure in heaven? Does he really trust Jesus that if he does this, he'll get it? Does he see the heavenly treasure as more valuable than his worldly possessions? Will he take Jesus' offer? Well, the Bible says, At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. This reaction is the exact opposite of what happens in, in Jesus' stories. See, it, it, in, it, there's a parallel story that Jesus tells at the same time as the one about the pearl, about a, a treasure in a field. And uh, you can go look that up sometime. But, but in, the, in that story, it describes the guy who finds the treasure and sells everything to get it. It says, in his joy, he went out and sold all that he had to get the treasure. The guy in the parable can see that selling everything that he has in order to get that treasure is a bargain. This is an incredible good fortune that this deal is even available to him. Um, am I going to take the deal? Are you, of course I'm going to take the deal. I'm overjoyed to trade what I have to get what I can get. But this guy, this guy who came to Jesus, his face falls, and he's sad, and he walks away. And then the Bible says that Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus' disciples are stunned, <laughs> absolutely shocked. It says, the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And there is no uh, metaphorical meaning to this business about the, uh, the camel and the eye of the needle. Uh, we're talking about an actual needle and an actual camel. It's meant to be an absurd illustration of something that is impossible. And, and in that culture, most people considered wealth to be a sign of God's favor. If you were wealthy, that showed that God was with you. God liked you. God was blessing you. And if the people who appear to be blessed by God cannot enter the kingdom of God, who can? Right? So then uh, the next verse, the disciples were even more amazed. And they said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So what is it that Jesus is saying is impossible? 
for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven. But notice what Jesus doesn't say here. He says it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. So then they ask, well, who can be saved? Well, his answer is not, well, obviously, if the rich can't get in, it's the poor. The poor get into the kingdom of heaven. No, he doesn't say that. Um, In fact, uh, what happens to the poor, he doesn't really even address that here. But I can tell you from the rest of the Bible that we know that no one gets into the kingdom of heaven without the intervention of God. God must be the one to save people. And yet, Jesus is clearly saying that it is especially difficult for people who are rich. Why? Well, because in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, or in order to have eternal life, you need to value it above all else. You need to give up everything you have in order to get the pearl. And it is just extra hard for people who have a lot of wealth to do that. But the conversation continues here. Here's Peter's response to all this discussion. He he says, Peter spokes up. We've left everything to follow you. Peter declares that where this guy was unwilling, you know, as he sees him walking away, he's like, that guy failed, but we didn't fail. Here we are, Jesus. We've done it. We've left everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus does not actually talk here about them giving up their wealth. He talks about something much more important and meaningful, home and family. But what he says here uh, isn't uh, only about home and family either. Anything that we have left for the kingdom of God and for the gospel and for Jesus will be repaid and more. Jesus promises us relationships and things even in this life, but ultimately the reward that is given to those who leave everything for Jesus is eternal life. So we need to be a little bit careful here that we don't uh, drift off into some bad theology uh, because it would be easy if you read those parables about the pearl and stuff and then you see this story about this guy uh, to understand the point as if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, if you want eternal life, there's an admission fee. And once you've paid the fee, then you can be in, but it's going to cost you. Um, So we could misunderstand Jesus to be saying uh, that, uh, that there's a payment that has to be made. But let me be clear. We don't pay to enter heaven. Not a financial payment, not through some kind of good works or penance. Salvation is a gift from God. We are not saved because of what we give up for God or how much money we give to the poor or to the church or because we have given up some enjoyable sin in our lives. The Bible says that it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So we are not saved because we have paid the price to get the treasure. So then 
what is it that Jesus is really saying here then? Well, the main point of the parables and the point of this, the, the requirement that Jesus puts on this guy is, uh, is not really how much uh, the, 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 the treasure is worth it's, or how much it's paid for. It's, sorry. It is how much it's worth, not how much is paid for it. It's the value of the thing that Jesus is trying to communicate. He's trying to, to show us how valuable eternal life is and the kingdom of heaven. So, so the parables uh, show that it is of such great worth that it cannot be compared to anything else. So it's about the value of the thing, not about how much is paid to get it. Uh, so when the rich man comes to Jesus, he wants eternal life, but Jesus knew his heart. He knew that there was something else that this man valued more than he valued salvation. And so Jesus confronted him with the choice of either holding on to his wealth or giving it up to get eternal life. So if any of us want to be part of God's kingdom, if we want Jesus to rule in our lives, the requirement is not that we sell everything that we have in order to buy our way in. The requirement is that we value God and his salvation above all else. In another place, Jesus puts this idea like this. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus' statement there, it's both general and specific, right? In general, he says, it's impossible to serve two masters. And of course, also three, four, five masters, as some of us try to do. Um, it's impossible. Any two masters. And then Jesus gives a specific example of one of the most common rivals to the service of God, which is the service of money. But the broad principle uh, is there. So money is not the only rival to God. It's just one of the most common ones. You cannot serve both God and your career. You cannot serve both God and family. You cannot serve both God and success. You cannot serve both God and popularity because no one can serve two masters. So it comes to a choice for every one of us. What is it that you truly value? Do you value eternal life highly enough that you would sell all that you have to get it? Can you say with Peter, Lord, we have left everything to follow you? But what does it really mean? I mean, Peter says, I've left everything. What, what's he saying there? It doesn't mean that we have to sell all our houses and we sell all our cars and we cash out our retirement plans and we donate all the money to the homeless shelter which would be your new home if you did that. Um, no, it, it, it doesn't mean that we have to cut off all our relationships with our families or to give up our careers. It means that we must value God and his kingdom so highly that anytime there is a conflict between our commitment to the kingdom, our commitment to God, and uh, any of these other things in our lives, we do not hesitate to choose 
God. Sometimes we'll have to choose between what will please the people around us and what will please God. Or between putting our efforts into driving our careers or putting our efforts into serving God. You might even need to choose between God and family. Most of the time, these things will be compatible. Um, God wants us to have great family relationships and to be successful in our work. But when conflict comes, which do you value? Which do you choose? Have you let go of everything else in order to pursue God and his kingdom? It shouldn't be a difficult choice. <laughs> if you value God's kingdom and the eternal, rewards, the eternal rewards that he offers, it should so outweigh any of our worldly desires. But do we really believe that? Do we really believe that God will reward us and make it worth anything we give up? There is great treasure in heaven, and you can have it, but you must value it above all else. Of course, the, the ultimate example of this is Jesus himself, right? Jesus uh, was living in heaven in perfect paradise with, with, uh, with his Father, and he gave up his position in heaven. He gave up his rights and came to earth, became a human, suffered all the kinds of things that we all suffer throughout our lives, and then at the end suffered a humiliating and torturous death. Why? Because he valued eternal life, and not even his own eternal life, your eternal life. He wanted you to be saved and to go and live in heaven with him. He is the ultimate example of valuing salvation so much that he was willing to give up anything to save us. And he gave up more than we could ever have to give up. Final question for you to think about. Is there anything in your life that you are not willing to give up in order to gain God and his kingdom? Is there anything in your life that you're not willing to give up in order to gain God and his kingdom? If so, you've got some, some business to do in your heart, some reordering of your priorities, 